You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello, everyone. Rick Howard here, and welcome to Cyberwire X, a series of specials designed to highlight important security topics affecting organizations around the world. As you are all quite aware, the pandemic has flipped our entire world on its head. And that is even more true for the network defenders of the world. How do you secure what was mostly a work from the office employee base into an almost completely work from home employee base overnight? In this episode of Cyberwire X, we explore how some of us are dealing with that monumental shift. The first part of the show features a lively conversation I had with Bob Turner, the CISO for the University of Wisconsin at Madison. In part two, we'll hear from Monir Hahan, the head of Threat Labs, and Mike Spanbauer, a security evangelist, both from Juniper, the sponsor of today's episode. So stay with us. And now, a word from our sponsor, Juniper Networks. In the new normal, IT organizations are scrambling to keep remote users connected and productive while trying to strike a balance between business continuity, security, and privacy. All this while maintaining user productivity and a business-grade experience. Their end users are trying to juggle the intersection of their work and personal lives, conference calls, e-learning, entertainment, and a spouse or partner trying to conduct business at the same time. In a sense, this use of the home network resembles a shared office space and the new distributed enterprise. For many reasons, endpoint protection and a simple VPN back to headquarters may not be enough. Every day, these elements are under attack. Your customers need a connected security strategy to maintain both continuity and security. Learn how Juniper Connected Security can help safeguard your users, applications, and infrastructure against advanced threats by extending security to all points of connection by visiting juniper.net slash enterprise at home. That's juniper.net slash enterprise at home. And we thank Juniper Networks for sponsoring our show. Let's begin the discussion with an old friend of mine from the Badger State, Bob Turner. He is the CISO of the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Thank you for having me here, Rick. Good to, good to talk to you again. Can you give us just a sense of how big uh, the University of Wisconsin at Madison is in terms of employees and contractors? Yeah, so the uh, kind of the rough figures that I like to work with is we have about 2,300 uh, staff. And that includes uh, academic staff, research staff, and administrative staff, uh, as well as the, you know, the, the people that take care of facilities and all of those other great things. And we usually have somewhere in the 40,000 range of students. So this year, we, uh, in the fall, we had 44,515 students. Uh, but we also have a great community of uh, emeritus staff that come back and freely return to the university, opportunities to, to learn. We have a, a affiliates. Um, we also have uh, retired staff that drop in from time to time to to assist. So I'd like to go with about 80,000 users total. Prior to this, we had a very small amount of online courses. Um, we had staff that were remote, but uh, it wasn't a huge percentage. It was probably maybe 15 to 20 about uh, at the very most. Uh, and and a, a lot of the things we were doing was on campus. We had 3,700 courses that we were 
delivering on campus. So for those remote teleworkers, uh, was the security stack they were using similar to what people were getting back in the office or was there some other kind of configuration you had them in or can you explain that to us? Yeah, sure. So uh, yeah, obviously if you're in the office and you're joining via campus wireless uh, or directly connected, uh, you had the stack that was on your machine as well as uh, the benefits of being inside the wire. Uh, When you're remote teleworking, Um, There are applications you can reach directly, but for most people uh, doing system administration work and working with our sensitive and restricted data sets, uh, you would be coming in via a, uh, what we use the Global Protect VPN, uh, and and that uh, gives us the ability not only to have a a nice little tunnel wrapped around, uh, encryption around the tunnel, uh, but also gives us the opportunity to see what is going on between your endpoint and the network. So what's the big change then as you moved everybody off campus for teaching and administration? Did did everybody get a VPN to work or how did you manage that? Well, so uh, various stages. So we have the people that uh, were comfortable with using VPN and getting in and out. Uh, And then we had those who had used it maybe once or twice or maybe the last time they used it, it was a previous version, previous vendor. And then we have the people that never really use the VPN because everything they can get to, they can get to from the internet. And it's just simply authenticating and and going to the data itself. But remember, those are not system administrators. Those are the actual users most so of the time. So including the students too? It's In, the... Absolutely, including the students. So what I like to do is kind of divide into classes of users. So there is the uh, the professor in the classroom and the students in the classroom, uh, both accessing Canvas, which is our learning management system. Uh, So the students have the ability to access the courses, read the material, to do their lessons, turn in their homework. The faculty have uh, another set of privileges above that for managing the coursework, inserting uh, documentation in there for the students to review or links. Uh, and then a little bit of classroom administration behind where the students are working. And then, of course, on the inside is the, you know, super user access for system administrators, uh, data managers, uh, the research staff that are pulling data sets to do research off of, you know, student performance research, et cetera. I would expect, too, that you have special arrangements for the grades program and evaluating the students in some manner. Is that also something you needed to worry about? Yeah, we did have to do that. And, you know, one of the things that we, we had to do is we had to implement a a tool for administering exams online because a lot of the courses, you know, where it may have been a turn in an essay and you'll get it as soon as the, the uh, professor and their uh, teaching assistant get through grading them. Uh, we had to go to a different model uh, for many of the classes, and that required us to get a special software package that helped us to um, administer those kind of exams. I was reading about this be uh, a couple of weeks ago that uh, just when you turn electronic essays in the the chances that uh, there could be people you know copying those things from other uh, sources and so is that what you had to worry about you had to have something in place to check that kind of thing well so it was uh, so we use um, uh, there's an application called Turnitin which is very popular in higher ed uh, and that takes care of the plagiarism um, checks you know to make sure that uh, you're citing references properly. Um, 
what we had to get was the actual software that helped manage the exams uh, in those areas. Uh-huh. So if your final was just a paper that you turned in and then the instructor had to hand grade it, that was, that was one thing. But if it was, you know, say a 50 question uh, uh, essay that was a paper that you turned in, rather than convert that into another object inside of the learning management system, some of them actually went to this new tool and, and just loaded everything into there so they could just take care of the exam and be done with it. I can see where that'd be a very daunting task, especially uh, for some of the older employees who have not really um, gone online with their teaching materials. Mm-hmm. And now you're being forced to train the professors on how to uh, learn how to do all the stuff. Uh, what kind of challenges did you face with that kind of thing? Well, uh, I would not have wanted to do this uh, without the <laughs> without our academic technologies uh, department within uh, the division of IT. Uh, they are professionals in the business. They understand the technology. They understand the the pedagogy, and and they are very familiar with the needs of the academy. and And that's a that's a real valuable tool. And I can't imagine uh, a maybe a smaller, less uh, resourced uh, university trying to do the things that we had to do. So again, thirty seven hundred courses were not online before right. spring break. Before the end of spring break, we had a greater percentage of those. And then after spring break was over, we were ready to go. That's an amazing achievement. Um, so my hat is off to you to get all that done. Um, what were the learning, uh, what lessons learned um, did you come back with after all that was over? So we were, we were talking about um, the academic technologies folks and, and the support that they provided just obviously a, a top-notch group of people uh, doing that. And I think that um, some of the challenges they helped us get over, they understood the coursework as it was set up. They made it very easy to bridge between what was in the learning management system, what goes on in the classroom in a normal setting versus what happens online. We have a, a tool uh, that we have you know, joined with our learning management system that would allow the professor to basically sit in his library at home or his office at home or even on the patio in the sunshine and deliver the lecture he would normally deliver in person. You could take that lecture that that professor recorded and run it again if you need to, and then maybe have him on the side in case any questions come on. Is that right? That's exactly it. So we are already prepared, and and this fall was going to be the debut of our first fully online degree at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And it's a a course inside of what we call the School of Human Ecology. It was basically designed that that degree program itself would would pull from the basic uh, sciences, the, you know, humanities credits, and all those kind of things would be delivered online. So we've been working at this a little while. And the other thing we did was really, really smart is uh, as an organization, we actually went through a pandemic tabletop last fall. Wow. That is fortuitous. What what, what did that exercise entail? I don't know what kind of foresight went into it, but we we wanted (laughs) to do an uh, emergency operations center tabletop, and we just happened to pick pandemic. Here's the obvious question to that. All right. When you guys went through that drill a year ago. How many of the things that you said you should do at the end of the exercise are the things that you're doing now, right? Did, did it, was it totally worth it or did you say, oh, we have to kind of uh, start from scratch again? Well, so not only did we drag 3,700 3, courses from classroom to online, but we went within the Division of Information Technology, except for one small unit, our print shop, we were all remote within that week. Wow. 
and this is also involved, remember, there's an awful lot of, of logistics that goes behind 44,515 students living on campus. Yeah. You know, we, we had to move them, and they were, some of them were departed for spring break already, you know, and get out of class so, a couple days early, and, and, and then they get an email saying, don't come back. Yeah. Uh, but then we also have a, a large population of students that are here because they had to be here because they're coming from an area that might have, at that time, been a level three area. So, oh, so you, the university put up uh, pandemic housing for certain students that met some criteria? Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And and you guys had figured that out because you went through the drill already, or that's something you had to figure out on the fly? Well, I think we figured out a lot of that on the fly because I don't think in the drill we said, you know, nobody's going to be able to be here. But we've gone yeah. through those scenarios before. So the previous year, we were the the recipients of the polar vortex, and we had a, a, a week or so of uh, temperature that met the grade. So in Wisconsin, uh, the rule is if the sustained wind chill is minus 35. Oh, my God. Minus 35? I don't even want to contemplate how cold that is. <laughs> well, we, we kind of exceeded that overachievers that we are. It was, uh, it was minus 50, I think, for a, a oh. day or two of that event. Yikes. So we had already kind of gone through this. We knew how to shelter in place. Um, we knew how to, to worry about food delivery to 44,000 hungry students. Uh, you know, we, we had already gone through this. And so the pandemic seemed like probably the next logical thing that we would plan for. So we're not through this thing yet. Uh, we've got months to go. Uh, what's the next thing on the hit parade for you guys to consider? What do you? What's the first thing on the horizon that you have to tackle um, as we continue um, with this problem? Well, uh, I will tell you that it is the uncertain financial future. Yeah. Um, that is probably the largest thing looming in sight. We have a number of, of initiatives that were teed up, uh, and we were waiting for the next fiscal year's funding to, you know, really start kicking off. But, you know, uh, when, you've, when you've lost revenue, uh, when you don't have the, you know, athletics uh, revenue coming in, you don't have the housing revenue, you don't have the meal revenue, and, and you have, you know, the uncertainty of the future. How many students are going to be coming back next year? You know, those are the things that, uh, that we have to be considerate of right now. And, of course, you know, we've had, uh, with all the, the economic downturn that's happened, we're facing obvious uh, revenue shortages from, you know, the public funding side of our business. I hadn't considered that where students may consider that, you know, maybe I should not do class or you know, continue my education next year until I get my feet back underneath me. Is that that's where you're going with this? Huh? Yeah, probably. Well, so one of the, this is kind of the, the uh, potential good news, uh, potential bad news stories is we have proven that we can deliver online. Mm -hmm. So if decisions are made in the future that, you know, we're going to try to do more online just to make sure that we're we're doing what we need to do to prevent, uh, you know, the second spike or the third spike of the, of the, the COVID uh, virus, um, that we're not, you know, everybody join on, on uh, you know, the day after uh, Labor Day and start classes to everybody just go ahead and stay home this term. You know, so there's going to be, you know, uncertainty uh, in that. Um, well, I think that, the, the, the silver lining that you mentioned there also is that from what you, how you've described it, you tell me if I'm wrong, that if students stay away from classes next year, it's not because we weren't technically ready or the security wasn't ready. You guys have 
showed that you're you can get all that done. If they don't come back now, it's for other reasons. Well, and and those reasons are valid. Um, yeah. You know, I have uh, I have uh, between my staff and students, I have about sixty people that I have to be very much concerned about as a CISO. Yeah. Um, how are they doing? How are they really lasting in uh, this period of extended uh, work at home where not only are we saying work remote, we're saying work remote and stay whole up in your house so you don't go out in a community and become one of the victims. Yeah, we've noticed that too, that, you know, uh, people are working hard and, but, you know, tensions are high, you know, lots of things going on. So yeah, keeping everybody moving in the same direction, that that's the thing you have to worry about even more so during this pandemic. Yeah. Well, we've got a, a an exceptional uh, group of people working for us. We have a great leadership team uh, in uh, in do it as well as in the uh, the schools, colleges, and divisions of the university. And and you know, kudos to our uh, emergency operations center um, and and uh, the UW Police Department that uh, that sponsors that part of the operation. Um, they they are. Spot on. They have the leadership's. Uh, they had the leadership's attention way back when, and they still have it. They have um, a lot of enthusiastic people that are, you know, just working a lot of hours to make sure that we understand what the next is and understand how we're going to address the next when it happens. So we're getting close to the end here. Is there a question I should have asked you that you would have liked to discuss or shed some light on? Yeah, I think uh, part of the the things that concern me and maybe the unasked question kind of all along is um, how do we define the new normal? Um, and I don't know if we can look to the past and say normal's going to look exactly like it did. For part two of this pandemic discussion, I'm joined by Monir Hahad, the head of Threat Labs, and Mike Spanbauer, a security evangelist. Both of them are from Juniper. I think uh, from our experience here at Juniper Networks, we've been handling it extremely well. As a matter of fact, we had uh, very little to uh, absolutely no issues whatsoever, kind of shifting towards a population of uh, Close to 100%, you know, I wouldn't say 100% of remote workers. We still have some essential workers that are in office. Uh, but the vast majority of uh, workers have shifted towards working from home. Um, that has been fairly uneventful. Uh, it seems like the plans we had in place for ramping up capacity uh, was uh, very well studied. And uh, we were able to shift within uh, you know, the first 24 hours into the, whole, the entire population moving into uh, this remote work. Uh, we've had some um, ups and downs with um, communications, like you know, some of the SaaS applications for, uh, that usually people use, like you know, Microsoft Teams or, or Zoom. or Some of these applications had some uh, ups and downs, but they were quickly ironed out, and uh, everybody's up and running. Uh, so, Anir, can you give me a sense of how what the flip was? What was the percentage of remote workers before the pandemic uh, compared to what it is now? So, for Juniper in particular, uh, I suspect that the remote workers uh, were probably around twenty to twenty-five percent, including our uh, sales force. Um, and now it's uh, north of ninety-five percent. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, yeah. it's fairly typical to a lot of 
um, IT organizations, but not that typical when you're talking about other organizations. Believe it or not, I actually worked for an, a company that had absolutely zero remote work. The, uh, the stance of the company at the time was, we want you to be fully engaged while you're in the office, and we want you to be off work when you're off the office. And, and it's a high-tech company. It was in a semiconductor electronic design automation. And, uh, you know, I, I suspect that uh, in the current times, they must have shifted the, uh, the strategy towards uh, allowing remote work. That is some old school thinking there. Okay, I appreciate that. I, I was going to say that most of the tech community uh, probably didn't have a hard time shifting over, you know. Uh, but uh, the folks that are that use tech are not, are not technology companies. Are the ones struggling with this? Mike, um, I know your job has significantly changed since the pandemic. Um, um, what do you, what are your customers saying when you're out talking to them about how they are handling this new stress? I think that there's a number of things that are top of mind for folks, both on the operations side and in the business side, as it pertains to security and, and their remote workforce. Right, you know, the attack surface has, has expanded radically. Uh, you know the tools available and visibility into uh, you know the workstations, which you know was was simpler when everybody was in the office, has has expanded. And it really depends on the sector uh, to to the point that you made about whether or not they had uh, the skills, processes, and sort of you know tools in hand prior to accommodate uh, the the need and and the enablement of the workforce that is largely. Uh, remote now and still remain effective at their roles and, and supporting, you know, the the company and the business initiatives. So, you know, folks have struggled, you know, throughout the spectrum uh, with various elements of it. But, um, you know, I think largely, you know, a lot, a lot of conversations I've had uh, reveal that, you know, the threats themselves and, and kind of what the uh, exposure is to uh, the clearly heightened uh, needs and, well, frankly, actors prey on opportunity. Right, that's what drives the threat industry, and those are really the top of mind, you know, topics, conversations, and uh, you know the the worries, I guess, that are kind of keeping them up at night, <laughs> in air quotes. Well, that that would be my 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 concern as a security practitioner, right? Is the gap uh, that as we transition from an in-office workforce to a home office workforce, um, Mike? The question for you for your internal teams: Did you all have to do anything? special or different than you thought when you transitioned to an almost completely at-home workforce? Or did you just lay down what everybody else had before the pandemic and that worked fine? So for us here at Educator Networks, uh, I think that we already had uh, quite a few uh, you know, capabilities, tools, and, and you know the ability to, to see inside and, and monitor uh, across all of the sort of workforce. Uh, so you know, largely it was a capacity point um, rather than necessarily a technical uh, enabler. And as Munir alluded to, right, we had really robust uh, capabilities and processes already um, to support that shift uh, in, in the workforce. And really, you know, the struggles are more around how do you manage your kids at the same time <laughs> while at home versus <laughs> versus the technology. But we accommodated the technical need and sort of threat visibility and capabilities within the uh, operations infrastructure fairly well, I believe. So I think that for a big security company like Juniper, that I could see that that would be less of a headache for your, you all. But Mike, when you're out there talking to your customers, um, you know, the non-techie customers who have just, uh, you know, retail stores and things and they use tech, you know, with older employees that you know, are not used to this kind of thing, uh, imagine teaching them how to use, you know, a VPN or whatever it is that gets them into the security stack uh, is quite difficult. What are some of your customers saying about how they approach that? 
I think um, that, you know, the, the, the general uh, perspective is that there's actually been a great deal of training. Most of them are eyes wide open relative to uh, sort of security awareness training because, you know, the root of this begins with knowing how they might get compromised and what behaviors, personal, these are human <laughs> for the user, uh, behaviors at the keyboard <laughs> uh, lead to potential exposure and risk. And, and those are kind of the conversations that, you know, I'm gentle to remind them of, but also that, you know, oftentimes they have fairly well thought out programs in place, um, though maybe the training's not uh, delivered as often as they'd like to. Uh, but as far as the, you know, the, the average users, they've, they've been able to enable and empower, um, though the real challenge becomes one of when you just drop that client for a moment, what about the exposed window of uh, potential, uh, you know, infection or, or or downloads that may occur, right? And that's sort of where, where you know, the education and energies have been spent. But on the other side, right, there's also, you know, the, the power users are the organizations that are kind of uh, forward to uh, embracing this and, and still ensuring uh, a very high degree of business continuity. You know, for example, the financial space uh, with, you know, the, the mandatory um, you know, work from home, but clearly the markets haven't stopped. And we've uh, specific uh, scenarios or customers that are using, you know, some of our smaller injection firewalls to both provide service assurance and security capabilities to still uh, afford them the power of transacting at a high rate of speed uh, securely. Uh, and, and that has uh, enabled them to work as fluidly from home as, as oftentimes they would have in the office, uh, yet in a different modality or, or sort of, you know, paradigm. So there's both ends of the spectrum. And I think, you know, customers sort of fall within, but largely they're aware and, and, and certainly um, capable of, you know, moving forward, if not as fast as they once did. Uh, we've also, uh, for our install base, offered subscriptions to uh, a number of the advanced security uh, software licenses uh, for those that may not be, uh, you know, currently uh, using those to ensure that they're protected, uh, you know, more broadly and more capably, uh, the, the number of variants and, and campaigns that have been mounted are, are you know, 2x, 2.5x what they were prior to, you know, the current healthcare scenario globally and, and likely will remain, uh, you know, on, on a fairly aggressive uh, schedule. So we want to ensure that, that our customers are supported in this time of global crisis and, and challenges and to uh, provide them with the best we're, we're able to offer uh, so that they can in turn best both support their current business, but also position themselves for, you know, uh, an accelerated recovery uh, once things do begin to relax, which again, fingers crossed, <laughs> won't be too far off, but again, uh, more broadly, uh, recognizing that, that, you know, business still does continue, but they need to ensure that they're protected at every step of the way. And that's something, you know, we do particularly well, you know, as a, as a very large, uh, you know, as a cybersecurity company that, you know, sort of represents a large portion of the globe. So uh, we're a number of weeks into this pandemic. And like you alluded to, Mike, that we are some ways uh, out before we are through with it. Um, we haven't solved all the problems that the pandemic has caused. What's next on the hit list? What are you guys thinking about in terms of the threat lab? What are you, what's the next thing that you're trying to track down? One of the things that we're proud of, but also uh, is particularly key to our uh, you know, customer strategy and enabling the market to move forward is that, you know, in, in these periods of transition and, and new architectural uh, deployments to have a path from where you are to where you're going, which can be months or potentially years in some cases. And we 
have both capabilities uh, and specific technologies to provide uh, a path of transition. So basically redeploy what you have as well as, um, and, and that's not exclusively Juniper Kit either, but also we can support and, and help with other uh, vendors' products in that transition state so that customers have a, a graceful path to move from where they are you know, to, to the next architecture, to the next thing. And that's, that's a core principle for both connected security and enabling a threat-aware network for our customers globally. If how these security leaders handle the crisis is an indicator of how the entire network defender community handled it, I think we all did pretty well. Of course, there were some hiccups, but for the most part, we all buckled down and did what we had to do. There's still a lot of work to do, for sure, but that is to be expected. What is clear is that some of the things we thought were so hard to do before the pandemic became a thing we just did because of the pandemic. And that is a silver lining to this entire mess. Our thanks to Bob Turner from the University of Wisconsin at Madison for part one of the show. And Monir Hahad and Mike Spanbauer, both from Juniper, our show's sponsors for the second part. CyberWire X is a production of the CyberWire and is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity startups and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our sound engineer is Elliot Peltzman. Our contributing editor is Bennett Moe. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. And I'm Rick Howard. Thanks for listening.